just something about the strings, isn't there? Like they resonate with the harmony of your soul, speaking to the depths of your heart. But you wouldn't understand that, would you? Because you're a simpleton, a mouth breather, who hasn't even considered signing up for the Weekly Q newsletter from WMQComics.com. Like the strings, the newsletter calls to you with its perfect collection of the best of the week, along with Dan's weekly editorial. now there came a time when the old podcast died then there was new lights hello and welcome to wmq presents Motherbox memories an exploration of jack kirby's fourth world starring me dan grope the tiger force at the core of all things and me matt lazowitz the revelationist happy with the sweeping sound of words this is the second episode of our deep dive into Jack Kirby's original Fourth World comics. Each episode will focus on at least one issue of the saga the King created when he came over to DC Comics. The saga of the great cosmic war between the good gods of New Genesis and their evil counterparts on Apocalypse. We'll summarize the issue and discuss how it fits into the greater tale Kirby was crafting and look at the mad genius of what he was up to. This time around, we're looking at 1972's Mr. Miracle number 9. Written, drawn, and damn near almost everything else by Jack the King Kirby, and inked by Mike Royer. What happens in this issue, Matt? You want the long version or the short version? Hit me with that Danny DeVito version, buddy. Fourth World Fagan slash Doc Brown sets Scott free. Well, free. Please, sir, I want some more. In an apocalyptic slum called Armageddon, a Gestapo chief named Wonderful Willick seeks a man named Hemon. Uh, I should point out before we go further that that is how we're pronouncing that guy's name. Hemon. Like how Bono pronounces Lemon in that one U2 song. Uh, because otherwise we're going to be snickering our way through this episode like two 13-year-old boys watching Justice League versus Teen Titans. See last week's episode for details. Uh, right. Yes. So anyway... Willick and his legion aren't exactly patient when it comes to their search, so they just turn the weapons on the crowd of lowlies, the populace of the ghetto, and light them all on fire. Standing in the, the inferno is one figure, seemingly unmarred by the flame, Hemon. Willick tries to blast him, but Hemon's force field sends the blast back at him, and Hemon phases out. Hemon re- reappears in his sanctuary, mostly phased into a wall, but before he can materialize in it, he is pulled out by young Scott Free, still dressed in the uniform of one of Darkseid's arrow troopers. Scott and Himon aren't exactly friends, bantering back and forth, uh, with Himon calling Scott skinhead uh, after the required head shaving of those who serve Darkseid. Uh, Himon leads Scott into his workshop, where his followers are assembling mother boxes. Among Himon's followers are a guy named Cretan, uh, nominative determinism at its best, who can't seem to get his mother box working, Zep who's a techno-artist, Bravo, who steals tech and uniform bits from the elite of Apocalypse, Weldron, who's, you know, just kind of there, and Orly, who has thoughts of beauty and is creating dancing figures in her mother box with her mind. 
Orly rises to dance herself uh, when the wall is knocked in and Lieutenant Barda of the Female Furies and her squad arrive. Uh, but they're not there to bust Hamon's den. Uh, they just want to bring their friend Orly back so she doesn't get busted herself. Uh, she and Scott have some flirty banter, and by flirty we mean that kind of fight but no one gets hurt. Uh, and then the Furies flee as the mob of lowlies arrives to bring Hamon to Darkseid's elite. Most of Hemon's crew phase out using their mother boxes, but Cretan, who never got the box to work, is stuck. The mob grabs him, and Hemon turns himself over to them to free Cretan. Cretan runs away to find Metron sitting in his Mobius chair. The usually placid and unemotional Metron gives Cretan a verbal slapdown, but the lowly doesn't care, happy to save his own skin. What we get next is a montage of the mob and Darkseid's elite giving Himon the total Rasputin treatment, uh, trying to kill him over and over again to no result. Eventually, they think they've killed him, but one in the crowd says Himon can make duplicates of himself, so who's to say that that is the real Himon being carried through the town on pikes? Well, we are to say, as we next cut to a slag heap near Armageddon, where Himon meets up with Metron. They talk about how Hemon conceives of the devices that only Metron can build, and about how they're conspiring to teach Scott about freedom so that he can embrace it for himself. At Willick's base, Cretan is dragged before the Protector, uh, and Willick just kills him out of hand. Willick comments that uh, Cretan could never use one of Hemon's mother boxes properly because they channel the Source, and someone like Cretan could never contact the Source. Uh, they put Cretan's body on a hook next to the bodies of Hemon's other followers and summon Scott and Barda. Willick shows the corpses to Scott and Barda, and then pulls back Scott's cowl to reveal he has grown a full head of hair, defying granting goodness' rules. He then shows the pair orally, recently killed in an electric chair-like torture device. Barda and Scott are getting ready to turn on Willick, who I guess doesn't have enough evidence on them to kill them right away, when his dinner arrives. The waiter whispers something to Scott and Barda, who follow him out as Willick lifts the cloach, uh, you know, those domes that cover a dish of food, and finds a big old bomb, which blows him and his followers to kingdom come. I just learned a new word. Uh, the waiter was, of course, Himon, who has a heart-to-heart -heart with Scott about Darkseid and the evil god's motivations, uh, about how Darkseid fears all that is different, and how Scott will not fall in line with Darkseid's way of thinking and dreams beyond the ways of Apocalypse. Uh, Scott has been having dreams of his mother, Avia, uh, and a feeling of serenity comes with it. Now, understanding Darkseid and his plans, Scott attempts to escape Apocalypse. He dodges parademons and dog cavalry, but is boxed in by the infantry when the female, f female furies... Ah, rolling back. Now, understanding Darkseid and his plans, Scott attempts to escape Apocalypse. He dodges parademons and dog cavalry, but is boxed in by infantry when the female furies, led by Barda, charge in and free him in retaliation for what Willick did to Orly. They make their way through a junkyard, but are trapped under a gravity beam, leaving Scott to crawl towards freedom, as Barda chooses to stay behind for now. Waiting for Scott are Himon and Metron, who have a boom tube waiting to transport him to Earth. Uh, also waiting is Darkseid. He won't stop Scott, but if he stays, Darkseid will complete his training, destroy what makes him Scott-free, and let him serve in the glory of Darkseid. Scott chooses instead to jump through the uh, magical hole. Uh, Himon and, uh, and Metron phase out, reminding Darkseid that he will have his war, but he will also have to face his son Orion in final combat. Darkseid accepts this, confident he will win. To be continued in Mr. Miracle number one. 
So this is the second major flashback story Kirby tells in the fourth world, uh, the first being The Pact, which we covered in our first Motherbox Memories episode. Uh, it also follows a series of young Scott Free shorts that ran in preceding issues. Uh, does this does this issue, does this comic work as well as The Pact to you? Uh, personally, I don't feel like I have as complete a grasp on everyone's motivations as I did reading The Pact. Uh, Matt, what do, you, what, what do you think? What's your kind of, you know, blush impression yeah. yeah i'm with you on that even though the pact i guess is in certain ways taking place in the middle of a story as there is backstory to all those characters it seems like a very natural beginning while here we're really thrown in media res we don't know why scott who is real sassy to Himon when they're first meeting in Himon's little underground base, is hanging out with him. He's really treating him like... Contempt isn't the right word necessarily, but he doesn't seem to be all about Himon's philosophy there. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It's a good story, but it's not it's not the pact. Uh, since we recorded that episode, I have been reading some more of the fourth world uh, and had read uh, a backup that Mark Evenier, who was Kirby's assistant and has written a lot about Kirby over the years, uh, has written. And the pact was Kirby's favorite fourth world story. He did and you can see why with that story yeah no definitely um another thing you can see in this issue is kirby hates fascists <laughs> which is just another reason that i love kirby uh you know the characters of wonderful willick and and though he's not in this issue is elsewhere in mr miracle vermin Vunderbar. uh they're they're just nazis who live on apocalypse you know, uh, full stop. It's it's weird that you know these these sort of these human more human looking people live on the same planet as more fantastic creations like Darkseid and and Calibac, but also not because I mean Nazis are about as true evil as you can get. You know, they 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 make for the best reality based. Um, I, I guess best maybe not the the ideal where they're what with the genocide, but uh, you know. The point is... The easiest. Yes. Uh, punch Nazis all day and such. So, you know, and, and it's likely no coincidence among all this. You know, I don't know when the term first came into being, but, you know, Himon calls Scott a skinhead uh, at the beginning of the issue because his head is completely bald, and obviously that was a thing in the in the neo-Nazi movement uh, that, that came after although you know one thing i pointed out later on is when the hell how over what span of time does this issue take place that scott later has a full head of hair i have a whole thing that i want to discuss about how this issue has some bits and pieces of the the original star wars trilogy to it and that sort of vague sense of time is part of that because when you look at both Empire and Jedi, to a lesser degree, but definitely Empire, mm -hmm. there is this sort of sense of you're never sure how long 
Empire Strikes Back takes. Because Luke is training with Yoda for some amount of time, but you're not sure how much time. And Han and Leia and Chewie are on the Falcon flying at sublight speed from the asteroid belt to Cloud City. All of that is very nebulous in mm-hmm. how long it's taking. And that's what we're getting here. Because it feels like okay, Cretan runs away, they try to kill Himon, and then Cretan is dragged before Willick. It seems like it's a pretty quick succession of time, and it could have been if Scott hadn't grown his hair out. Unless Scott is shaving his head every, you know, six hours or so, that couldn't have been a day or two. That's got to be a couple months. I mean, I would think it would take a long time to set up some of those ridiculous death traps uh, that they had for Himon. And they could have kept Cretan in a cell and just dragged him out when they needed him or thought they could get information, you know, from him more easily. That that is a very that's a valid point. The other thing that more so in this issue than a lot of the other fourth world stuff is and it ties in with Kirby and his hatred of fascism mm-hmm. is how clear it's made that what dark side is about is more than just conquest but conformity that everyone is meant to think and die for dark side it it's not just that they are going to be his Minions. It's that they are going to flat out have no thought but the thoughts of Darkseid. And that's a very fascist sort of mindset. Mm-hmm. And Kirby really is pulling on that here. That, the anti- that to him, anti-life isn't death. Anti-life is the destruction of free will. That's what Darkseid wants. And it's never played with a ton in Kirby. They talk about it, but as Darkseid never really gets the anti-life equation, there is one issue of the Forever People where a human channels it, billionaire Bates, who... We will eventually get to that issue if we continue doing Motherbox Memories, and there are some uncomfortable parallels with some stuff that has happened in the real world in the past few years. Um... But it's Grant Morrison who spends a lot of time playing with anti-life in some of his dark side stories, very much in Final Crisis. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, no, in the uh, original Fourth World, dark side is a, uh, a serial mascot. You know what I mean? He like he wants the thing so bad, but in every commercial he comes like this close and then doesn't get it. So like the tricks rabbit, the the criminal and the cookie crisp commercials, uh, Sunny the cocoa puffs bird, Barney Rubble. <laughs> oh, I now have this image of all of them and Darkseid sitting in a circle, like in Wreck It Ralph, <laughs> with the villains. I, I... These people are beneath Darkseid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but you know what? I think in some ways works a little better than what happens with Thanos, who constantly does get that thing that he's searching for, and then fumbles the ball at the 10-yard line. Darkseid is constantly questing 
for the anti-life equation. If he kept getting the anti-life equation and then not figuring out how it works or whatever, mm-hmm. it would make him a little bit less dark side. True. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. Um, the competence is what makes him scary. Yes, and the fact that his legions have generally been interesting characters versus Thanos who went... 30 years without really any named goons except for Gamora who betrays him pretty quickly and I still can't name everyone in the Black Order yeah I I feel like there must be stories out there that make the Black Order more interesting than they are if all you have read is the core Infinity miniseries because generally speaking I've never really gotten why the Black Order, with the exception of Ebony Maw, who is kind of neat, are are a thing. Because they they feel like... I mean, I love the Nasty Boys, but they are cosmic Nasty Boys. That is perfect. That is so perfect. They've got a neat look, but there's not much going on behind the scenes there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, come for the new gods, stay for the... Stay for the nasty boys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, shifting back, uh, you know, another thing about this story is it's pretty brutal. Uh, You know, again, back to the fascism thing, but, you know, Willick has no problem killing citizens of Apocalypse for absolutely no reason, uh, really. You know, they it, the the whole comic starts with with Willick's crew going into Armageddon and killing civilians to to draw out Himon. Um, you know, we don't really think of Kirby as a Bronze Age guy uh, so much as you know a Silver Age artist who continued doing some of his best work into the Bronze Age. But this is you know, in terms of its kind of scope and its violence, this is very much a Bronze Age story. Definitely, there is a more grounded, as as cosmic as the story is, though, (laughs) and not necessarily the the Rasputining, but that opening bit is very grounded in a reality of the time. We're in, and my my history of this period is not great. And I always feel bad about this. You can give me the American revolution, the civil war, even the second world first and second world wars. And I can do this, but I can never remember what year we pulled out of Vietnam. 1973. Okay. I thought so. I I thought we were right at the period where we were pulling out of Vietnam. So you're getting, you know, footage of people, caught in napalm attacks and things. So this is something that would be in people's consciousness at this particular moment. And Kirby is not shying away from how brutal a regime like this can be. And as somebody who served in World War II, you know, he would know. Absolutely. The 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 king, you know, comes by his Nazi fighting credentials. Uh, you know, as pure as you can get them. 
because he fought Nazis. <laughs> um, Again, another reason to love the king. Another reason, absolutely. Uh, you know, when we talk about the the montage of of attempts to kill Himon, we keep bringing up Rasputin. That's actually not the vibe that I got originally. I got Looney Tunes. Uh, I saw just Wiley e. Coy- Wiley e. Coyote just falling off the cliff and just sort of exploding at the hands of all those various Acme weapons. Uh, although, I mean, the Coyote deserved it. Himon. Uh, did not, and obviously he survives all these attempts. But, uh, you know, they boil him in lava. They cover him in sticks of dynamite and blow him up, light him up like a candle. Uh, He's dropped from the sky. He's put on pikes and carried through town. Uh, And then, later on, uh, Himon serves a bomb under a a cloche, new word, to uh, Willick. And Willick may as well have just looked to camera and said, Mother before it blew up like this is this is total looney tunes itchy and scratchy level violence we can thank uh my wife for that word because i was like i'm reading that scene i was like hey hon what's that thing called because i know you know since you worked in restaurants i was like okay good and as as you just said i learned that word myself yesterday there we go (laughs) oh yeah no and by the way yes this is some complete over the top comic book violence and i mean i think kirby is trying to balance the horrors of the reality he's playing with with something over the top because kirby is a man who loved was a man who loved his you know comic bookiness there are very few creators i can think of who had bigger minds for this kind of thing than jack kirby Mm mm-hmm Definitely. Um, one thing I did like in this issue was the seeds of Scott and Barta's relationship. They don't know each other. Uh, you know, they're, they're just meeting for the first time. They're both fully ensconced in Darkseid's order. But through each other, they start to discover about themselves that they're looking for another way. You know they're not they're not at anywhere near the point of trying to convince each other to to fight this fight, but there's an attraction that's sort of born out of the epiphanies that they're each separately having on their own. You know Scott is having these visions of his mother, uh, who, you know he uses that callback line from the pact of of when uh, Avia says to Isaiah, you know I never heard you sing, um, you know and Barda is is pissed off because of of what Willick does to Orly. You know, she feels responsible for her. She's trying to keep her out of danger. Um, you know, but this is this is what, and they don't go to Earth together. Just it's just Scott Barta tracks him down later. But this is kind of where the magic sort of it's where you see the spark without it actually being explicit. Oh, definitely the the first sequence where they meet, where Barta wraps up metal pipe around Scott's neck and he blasts it off with sonic gadgets he's created. Like, That's flirting. These, that is absolutely flirting on Apocalypse. <laughs> they they have that spark right out of the gate and you can see how much Kirby loves these characters. He said that the 
Barda is inspired by his own wife, Roz, and you can tell how much he loves her as a character, that she comes in guns blazing in every scene and is strong and is just so cool. And there, it will be so easy for so many other writers to have gotten her wrong over the years, but I've generally seen people get that right. Barda is never a damsel. Barda is always the one there to defend her husband. It's great. I mean, listen, if Jack Kirby is the king, then Roz is the queen. And if you're going to be handling a character based on Roz Kirby, you best not fuck up. Damn right. <laughs> uh, this issue, we also see another relationship and one that is not as uh, well explored over the course of the fourth world saga, both Kirby's own and stuff afterwards. And that's Metron and Hemon. They have this weird sort of respect for each other and this relationship where it seems like from the pact that it was Metron who invented all the boom tubes and everything. But now we see that Hemon, who is an enemy to Darkseid and his crew, was involved in that. And it's just, it's a, another strange relationship. I can't, for the life of me, figure out what Hemon's, you know, motivation, what his thought is in all of this. I mean, he gives a whole speech later on. I mean, his motivation is, you know, to stop Darkseid and, you know, the anti-life equation and all that. But he's not given as clear a motivation as someone like Metron. And Metron is science without application. Metron is science for science's sake. Mm -hmm. While Himon seems to be science bent towards helping people, and I guess that would sort of make Desaad his opposite number? Science built around the concept of harm. Hmm. I can I can see them sort of lined up in a character alignment sheet. S- mm. Science good, science neutral, and science evil. Yeah, yeah. I could I could definitely see that. I mean, it, it's interesting to to question exactly why what it is between Metron and Himon here. And I don't think it's ever been explained. I haven't read uh, Himon's other major appearance by Kirby, and we'll get into this later on, but he is one of the less explored New Gods characters. So I don't know if we've ever gotten any really good answers on what his shtick is. Uh, I definitely, you know, this kind of, this kind of serves as a good segue into the character spotlight segment since we're, you know, already talking about Himon, you know, he definitely is, he's, he's presented as a major player in this one issue, but like you said, in the scheme of it, he does get very little page time, um, 
I mean, he pops up again in the Hunger Dogs, the yeah. final story, and he is the father of Becca, uh, Orion's wife. Yes, who's another character who seems to pop up when convenient, and then sort of fades into the background. Uh, she's a character I I haven't read a lot with either, and I'd like to get to know better because to be the wife of Orion seems like you 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 gotta also be pretty damn tough. Yeah, or willing to put up with his temper tantrums. Mm. But yeah, it, it's just interesting that he apparently had such an outsized role in Scott escaping to uh, to Earth from Apocalypse, which you know is the catalyst for the reigniting of the war between Eugenesis and, and Apocalypse. Now, in the notes to this episode, you had specifically said that it felt to you like Himon had a, a likeness. This was Kirby working off of someone he knew in real life. I couldn't, I couldn't place it, but I, I guessed and said he looks like Archie Bunker. <laughs> there was definitely a vibe. Um, but once again, thanks to those great afterwards to the original uh, Fourth World omnibuses that DC put out back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, I think, um, where Mark Evenier, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Kirby's assistant, uh, back in the day uh, did in each book we have an answer Kimon uh, uh, is modeled after uh, Shell Dorf uh, who was the founder of San Diego Comic Con how about that yeah that is you, something it is a you learn something new every day sort of moment well that is that's two things now that, that that's Shell Dorf <laughs> and that's Cloche yes <laughs> Uh, it's a very educational Sunday. <laughs> indeed it is. Uh, one thing that I, I missed, because I kind of jumped the gun into the character spotlight, that I did find interesting when rereading this issue, because I read this issue many moons ago, uh, I had forgotten that this issue is basically uh, POV shifted and decompressed into uh, Cecil Castellucci and Adriana Mello's Female Fury miniseries from last year. Oh. That all of the major beats are also in that miniseries, but from the Fury's point of view, and with that sort of post-Me Too, or mid me too because we're most assuredly not post me too um but mid me too point of view that that series had it's interesting to read the two of them in conjunction to each other because it's the only other place as far as i can tell where uh willick uh ever pops up i mean i think there might be some one or two other places where Orly might pop up in a flashback, a Barda flashback or something, but it's the only other story where she is a major, she's a much major and more fleshed out figure in that female Furies miniseries than she is here. Hmm. Interesting. Well, now it is time. Uh, so, you know, we, we introduced the, the superlative concept in the first episode, but we didn't have a name for it uh, because we couldn't think of one. But now it is time 
for the Source Awards. No one else has been using it. <laughs> Where we talk about specific stuff that we liked in the issue. Uh, so we'll start with our first category. What is the, what's the raddest? Uh, Jack Kirby draws a lot of cool stuff, but what's the raddest thing he drew in this issue? Uh, for me, I love the two-page splash at the beginning of Armageddon. Uh, this is just one of those scenes where Kirby gets to go off drawing fantastic buildings and technology and flying fish lizards and background characters with ugly faces and flaming skies, those crackling dots that I love so very much. <laughs> uh, me, I got to go with page 14, which is in the middle of the Looney Tunes Rasputin sequence. Um in this particular page, uh, Himon is strapped into this metal thing. It's not quite a stock. It's not quite an Iron Maiden, but he's all locked into it. And there are sticks of dynamite attached to it at all ends. It it doesn't seem terribly practical, but it looks like it's going to blow up real good. And it's the kind of thing that only a small child or a mad genius could have come up with, which is a very Kirby sort of thing. Indeed. Uh, All right. Next category. Who wore it best? Whose costume was your favorite? Um, I really dug Hamon's. Uh, You know, he's supposed to be in hiding, but he's wearing the same green, red, and yellow color scheme that Scott Free adopts later as Mr. Miracle, uh, except it's got a hood and black armbands and brown buccaneer boots. So it's, it's this loud color scheme that tempts fate, which, I mean, let's face it, that's what escape artists do. Uh, I got a kick out of Bravo. He was one of Himon's gang. Most of those guys are in gals are wearing you know tatters and rags like most of the lowlies but bravo stole a uniform from one of the apocalyptian soldiers so he's in orange and yellow uh, with a silver helmet with a skull and crossbones on it and these bright black boots it's quite a look (laughs) kirby likes to use all the colors Oh, yeah. He, he does not shy away from anything. I mean, I, I was initially looking at Willick, maybe picking him. It's like, nah, he's got a kind of bland purple outfit. There's not a lot going on there. So it's like, no, no, got to go with uh, with Bravo here. You know, it says something about comics when you could say a, a, a character who's all in purple is, is has a bland costume. <laughs> That is a very valid point. God bless the four-color medium of the Bronze Age. (laughs) Uh, What's up with Ronald McDonald's lame friend Grimace? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Next category, what is the crackliest panel? What's the one panel in the issue that you think about when you think about Jack Kirby? Um I don't think I necessarily went with the Kirbyist panel, but but a classic panel nonetheless. Uh, it's the one on the last page of, of Scott yelling, let me be scot-free and find myself. Uh, that's basically what the whole Mr. Miracle series is about. Uh, it's even written on the back of my copy of the trade. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's classics are classics for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I had to go with... Uh, the panel in the middle of page 19 where Willick uh, opens that cloche and sees the bomb that's going to blow him up. Uh, Not only is the 
bomb grate, this bright red thing with curvy patterns and little crackles of energy coming out the back. But the expression on Willick's face is priceless. He's so smug throughout this entire issue. And you see this look of shock and what the fuck on his face. And, you know, there's no better moment than seeing a fascist get blown up. It just makes you feel good. It warms the heart. It really does. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's because, you know, you usually, if you're at all a, a decent thinking person, most of the time, even when it's the villain dying, you, you kind of have that moment of, oh, you know, that that is a life lost. Not with Nazis. Those guys, it's like, yeah, okay, one less Nazi in the world. What's a better place for it? And nothing of value was lost. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, next we have, and this is a new category, new to this episode, Best Kirby Babble. What is the best name for a weapon or machine used in this comic? Uh, I went with neither. I went with the name of Arma- the, the Armageddon uh, slum uh, on the whole, uh, where much of the story takes place. Uh, it's a great name. It sounds like the name of a late 80s metal album that has like a bunch of skeletons on the cover uh, doing normal people things like grilling and watching television because it says something, man. I don't know if you could see my scare quotes in this audio medium, but they were there. <laughs> they absolutely were. Um, me, I, I like Willick's trademark weapon. It, it, it's a club that he throws, and thus it is called a throw club. You know, not all of them have to be elaborate. Some of them can just be delightfully on the nose. Uh, and as mentioned earlier, I also get a kick out of the fact, again, not a machine, but that the jerk member of Himon's crew is named Cretan. You name your kid that, and I'm sorry, you get what's coming. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then I just went through, and I thought I, it would be fun to just run through all the names of the other wonderful machines that the king uh, used in this issue. So we've got Dynablast, Computo Stylus, Mind Video, Magna Ring, Mind Lock Beam, Aero Discs, Electrolance, Inferno Bolts, Mass Gravity Atoms. All of these had hyphens. <laughs> Kirby loved his hyphens. And we love him for loving them. Yes, we do. 100%. Uh, unconditionally. All right. Next. Most dramatic line. What one line is the soapiest, most dramatic line in this comic? And of course, we will deliver it in our most dramatic voices. Uh, so mine goes to Himon on page 21. <clears throat> I'm a dreamer, a visionary, a think tank who pioneered the calculating mother box and linked it with the source. I found the X element and pioneered the boom tube. I dream. And this reminds me of... Uh, this one moment from the 1994 MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, R.E.M. was accepting an award for the video for Everybody Hurts, and uh, Adam Yauch from the Beastie Boys, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, storms the stage in the lederhosen-clad guise of his Nathaniel Hornblower persona. 
and he launches into a pre-Kanye West, I'm gonna let you finish speech uh, in defense of Spike Jones, who directed the video for Sabotage. And he says in a Swiss accent, or we'll just say that it was a Swiss accent, I want to tell everyone this is a farce that I had all the ideas for Star Wars and everything. Uh, <laughs> it is the most ridiculous boast. And, and here's Humon, this guy we only just met, who's basically only in this one issue until Hunger Dogs, which is like 15 years later, who's like, yeah, all this cool backstory and this fully lived-in world you've been hanging out in for the past year or whatever, that was me. I did that shit. <laughs> uh, for, for me, I, I gotta give this one to the Big D himself. Uh, on page 25, uh, when Darkseid finally appears... Uh, he reaches out to Scott as Scott nears the boom tube and says, and here's that other Star Wars reference I was talking about earlier, uh, in all of his Emperor Palpatine at the end of Jedi glory, yes, he can take it. I'll not stop him now. If courage and bravery took him here, some of it was mine. Stay, warrior. Let me complete the destruction of Scott Free, so you may live with the majesty that is the power of Darkseid. Let the hate flow through you. <laughs> something, 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 Darkseid. <laughs> it is Darkseid at his most Palpatine, and it, it's just, you know... Yet rule, or even a little bit of Vader in the rule the galaxy as father and son sort of moment. I I, I will admit, usually when I hear Dark Side in my head, I hear Tony Todd. But uh... oh no, oh, yeah, uh, Tony Todd or Michael Ironside from the uh, Superman animated series. I can see yes. that going going both ways. But yeah, no, in that particular bit of dialogue, it is absolutely Ian McDiarmid as Palpatine. Yeah, no, one hundred percent, yes. Um, uh, any anything else we should uh, we should touch on in this uh, round of of MBM? <laughs> uh, no, just you know, share your thoughts with us. Uh, let us know if you're digging this show. We're really digging doing it. So yeah, um, yeah. So we've had a lot of fun, but that is it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ Presents on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. <laughs> you can support WMQ Presents and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Modrinsky from MojoWorks.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Saren. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. And me at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our weekly editorial. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>